welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. I hope you're staying healthy and happy during this crazy time. Thank you for taking time to join us today. My name is Stephanie Neely, your host, and I'm a client advisor and head of the Central and Canada region in our North American institutional business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Rick Figley, who is a portfolio manager and head of the core fixed income strategy team. Over the next hour or so, we'll discuss what we are seeing in fixed income markets and how it is impacting portfolio positioning. To facilitate this discussion, I'm going to pose some questions I have prepared for Rick before opening up the line to hear the questions from those of you dialed in today. So, Rick, you ready? All set. All set. So before we jump into markets and investment implications, we're going to throw out a very easy question for you. Tell us about yourself and how you became interested in fixed income trading. Okay, we'll start out with the least interesting thing. (laughs) So I've been in J.P. Morgan, Legacy Bank One, for almost 27 years, coming up next month. I am a graduate of Ohio State University. So obviously, I'm a big Buckeye fan. I grew up in Ohio, so I'm a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan and Cleveland Indians fan. And I am proud of that, even though that those teams haven't done very well through the years. I'm still a fan. And then the only other thing I'll add is that I was in the Ohio National Guard for 22 years, retired as a major, went through several deployments, a couple overseas, a couple domestically, which I'm pretty proud of. The way I always talk about that is those ended up being, you know, the greatest experiences that I never really wanted to have. And then as far as how did I get interested in fixed income trading, there's no great story here other than when I graduated from Ohio State, my first job was as a tax accountant, a fiduciary tax accountant for Bank One. I went through two tax seasons, and after that second tax season of four months of 80 hours a week, I just decided it wasn't something that I wanted to do. As a coincidence, Bank One Investment Advisors, or asset management at the time, was consolidating their operations in Columbus, Ohio. And I had a friend in the company that suggested I go interview, and I got the job as a fixed income trader and never looked back. Well, I'm feeling your pain. I'm a White Sox fan, so I know what it's like to cheer for a losing team, but that's beside the point. So let's jump into the markets a little bit. Tell us what you're seeing in the fixed income space during this COVID-19 period. And since you've been around for a little while, tell us how it compares to what you saw in 2008. That is a very broad question. What are we seeing? So markets have evolved from February, where risk started to trade off, to March, where everything traded distressed, even to the point of treasuries were not trading with much liquidity. Even on-the-run treasuries were not trading with a lot of liquidity, to April, where Things have improved a little bit for higher quality bonds. And then today, and we're going to talk about the implications of that, and how are things different now versus back in the great financial crisis? I think the biggest difference is that the great financial crisis was more about banks and extending credit, mortgage credit to individuals that probably didn't qualify or definitely didn't qualify. So when the Fed came in, it was about providing liquidity to the banks and essentially bailing out banks. And they're doing some of the same things now as what they did 
back then, but a little bit more. So in the great financial crisis, they bought a large amount of treasuries, and they also bought a large amount of mortgage-backed securities. But they really didn't start buying until after things started to really turn south. This time around, the Fed has been much more proactive. And when we talk about the response, you know, I hate to call it stimulus because so far, I don't think anything that's been done can be referred to as stimulus. So it's more about the response. And you have the government response and you have the Fed's response. So on the fiscal side, I don't really think that we've seen the impact or the benefit of what's happening on the fiscal side as far as helping individuals. There are some individuals collecting unemployment that are getting a decent amount of unemployment because of the additional $600 a week that the government is providing. But for the most part, we really haven't seen the impacts of or potentially the benefits of what the fiscal side has done. Conversely, on the federal side, the Federal Reserve came in, and let's just call it with the bazooka. And they came in early and they came in big. And so on March 24th, they essentially announced unlimited QE. You know, I don't think this is a story that anybody hasn't heard before. But the one thing that's different now versus what they did in the great financial crisis is they really expanded what they are buying. This is a call about core bond. So when I think about core bond, how we're positioned, how we perform versus the ag, effectively what they're doing is they're coming in and buying the index. And so I find that very interesting, how that they went about that. And while there are some benefits, it does pose some challenges, then those are some things that we can talk about as we go on here. Great. So you talked about fiscal stimulus and the Fed coming in with a big bazooka. It doesn't sound like you think those things have really gone through and we haven't seen the impact yet. But tell me about how it's impacting fixed income as an asset class. And then I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball and tell me to predict or what you're thinking about in terms of short, mid, and long-term interest rates. So everything that the Fed has announced that they were going to be purchasing has rallied. I talked about in March that the Treasury market was trading with, let's just call it some lack of liquidity. Once they announced their program, so that last week of March, the Treasury market started to trade it started to get back to normal. At least it took the first steps. As we went through April, the treasury market definitely has recovered. And I would say, while maybe not back to pre-COVID liquidity, because I still think if you try to get some large size done in the treasury market, it can be a little challenging, but it's significantly better than what it's been over the last two months. Now, Obviously, in the mortgage market, the same thing. You know, So the Fed comes in and announces they're going to buy mortgages, and they came in really big this time. In the great financial crisis, they were buying about $3 billion a day. When they started this program, I think they started buying about $20 billion a day, and now they've tapered it down to around $8 billion a day. That's still pretty substantial. One of the things, I guess, that's before I get to the other sectors – What's interesting in the mortgage market at this point in time is that when the Fed bought mortgages after the great financial crisis, the great financial crisis, because it was an issue of mortgage credit, underlying mortgages, I mean, it hit the agency mortgage market also, but it was all about individuals having mortgages that probably shouldn't have had mortgages. And so there were a lot of foreclosures that happened afterwards. I think this time is different. 
after the great financial crisis, just due to regulation on the banks, that only the most qualified people could get mortgages or conventional mortgages. So for that reason, over the last 12 to 14 years, the health of the agency mortgage market or those borrowers is significantly better now than what it was prior to the great financial crisis. And why is that important? It's important because after the great financial crisis, it paid to own agency mortgages because there were some nuances within the mortgage market due to some technicals, due to fails and some other reasons. But effectively, you saw dollar rolls for the mortgage basis go extremely high. So just by owning a current coupon, you could earn go 12 ticks to a half a point per month. We're not seeing that this time around. So we're seeing those dollar rolls or that carry on the basis, but nowhere near what those levels were. I think what we're seeing in the mortgage market now is that because of the health of that underlying borrower, that we're actually going to see this time around a very large prepay wave come through. Due to the lockdown, while we have seen speeds on mortgages jump substantially, we think it's going to go materially higher from here. So over the next, call it six to nine months, I think we're going to see some very, very fast speeds on a lot of bonds that investors have thought that had some call protection, but it's probably not going to have any call protection to them. Why is that important to what we do? I'll talk about that in a little bit. As far as other implications, obviously in the corporate credit market, So when the Fed came in this time, I think it's important to recognize that with the Fed, they don't want to be seen as bailing out investors or, you know, for that matter, irresponsible lenders or irresponsible borrowers for that matter. So I think for what they're trying to do, especially in corporate credit, so they've announced that they would buy corporate credit, investment grade, five years and in. And they're also going to purchase some fallen angels in a smaller amount, but there's also some criteria that's involved around those too. But when we see what's happened in the corporate credit market, we've seen spreads tighten pretty dramatically. So in the wise of March, we got to around a 373 OES. Currently, we're sitting at around, well, we'll call it the low 200. So right around 210, 208 on the OES. So that's been a pretty substantial move just because the Fed has announced that they would be buying the front end of the curve. I find this very interesting because ultimately the Fed came in here not wanting to look irresponsible on how they're trying to help the economy. And so basically what they've allowed companies to do is it's really cranked up the new issuance machine on these IG credit issuers. So if we go back the last couple of years and we see that, I'm sure everybody remembers the big story about leverage in the IG market and the triple B sector, and even into the single A, up to single A's. And the story was all about the deleveraging that was happening. Well, I think that, you know, some deleveraging did happen, but what's going on now is companies are levering back up, but they're levering up substantially versus what they were in 2017, 2018, and somewhat of 2019. So what this does is it's created an interesting dynamic. So we have this technical of the Fed backstopping spreads. It starts with five years and under, but effectively, it's affecting almost the whole curve. And while allowing companies to fundamentally get worse, 
So to me, there's this large disconnect with what's going on in corporate credit. So spreads tightening while fundamentals get substantially worse. To me, ultimately, we think that this will end up being a problem. When we talk about, Stephanie asked me about my prediction, medium-term, long-term, you know, making predictions with the virus is very difficult. It's still an unknown. And I like to say that, you know, I'll give you my projection for the next week, but then next week I have, as a portfolio manager, I have the right to change my mind. (laughs) Hopefully I got a chuckle out of that. But putting that aside, and I'll pull out a crystal ball, is that unemployment, when we see, is probably going to be around 18%. That's pretty substantially negative. That may persist for a month or two. And then as economies open up, that will come down fairly dramatically to a level, and it may be several months, maybe it's six months, maybe it's nine months to the end of the year. But when we get to that fourth quarter, we're probably going to be around 10% unemployment. And unfortunately, we are probably going to stay there for an extended period of time. Now, one of the reasons you say, why does it come down pretty substantially? So economy's open. There's a lot of people that are applying for unemployment. But when economies open back up, a large portion, and maybe it's half, maybe it's a little less than half, are not going to go out and have to look for jobs. They have jobs out there waiting for them. So that employment picture will look better, I think, in the medium term. But then once we get into the long term and we stay at 10% for an extended period of time, I think that when you think about the recovery, it's going to be long and slow. So I don't know if the recovery is going to look like a W or I've heard a swish, but I wouldn't be surprised as the economy's open, things look a little better for a while. But then we also have a wild card, and it's mind-boggling to even think about what is going to happen with the election. So come September, all bets could be off there too. So I would say through the rest of this year, it's going to be a very bumpy road, and it's going to be very challenging. We probably have not seen the last of Fed response, and more than likely, we have not seen anywhere close to the last of the fiscal response either. That was good information. Some of it kind of sad, but good information nonetheless. So shifting to the portfolio management, tell us how you have altered the portfolio from a liquidity, duration, and diversification standpoint, and how you're going to position it moving forward. And I know I can't ask you to pull out your crystal ball twice, but just give us a sense of what you're thinking. Sure. This one's a little bit easier. So diversification, core bond has always been a broad market, very diversified portfolio. It's been that way as long as I worked with Doug Swans and it came on board and it still is today. So that is not going to change. From a duration standpoint, as we went through February, we started to get a little bit long. And then in March, when it was difficult to buy long bonds. I was trying to buy as many long bonds as I could so that we are overweight the long end of the curve. So we've seen the long end of the curve trade off the last couple of days on the supply announcement. That is pretty short-lived and we're seeing a rally today right back, almost getting everything back that we gave up yesterday. Ultimately, we think the curve is going to flatten. So being long duration and being long the part of the curve, we think is the right position. You know, as far as liquidity, now liquidity is interesting. So back in February, and I have to go back to February with this again, too. 
late February, we did get notification from an internal partner that was looking to do a reallocation out of bonds back into equities, which is natural. And they told us it was going to happen at quarter end. So all through the month of March, we were really concerned with liquidity. And so we built up a treasury position by we were selling some corporate credits, but through paydowns on our mortgage or our securitized bonds, between that and selling some corporate credit, our treasury position ended up north of 30%, which is a lot of liquidity for, I think, a core fund, especially when you look at some of our competitors out there. And then also, we kept somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars in cash. After that reallocation happened in March, we started to see some inflows back in the fund treasury position. We dropped a little bit, so we're slightly under that 30%, so call it maybe around 28.5%, but we're still carrying over a billion dollars in cash. And the way we're thinking about this is that as time goes on, and this is where I said I reserve the right to change my mind on a week-by-week basis, and the reason behind that is that every week we learn something new, or we learn something more about how the economy is going to progress with this virus and whether or not there's new treatments or they talk about a vaccine or we talk about the opening or the, you know, less lockdowns. There's a lot of headwinds out there, but there are a lot of things that could potentially parts of the economy could do okay. So we're liquid and we have a lot of cash and we're looking for opportunities, but we don't think we have to be in a hurry right now. That's why, like I said, liquidity is extremely important to us right now. You never know all of a sudden, you know, if we go for a couple of weeks and then there's a big spike in outbreaks of the virus or spreading of the virus. I mean, that's definitely going to be a negative and we're going to have to watch that. And having liquidity is going to be key. All right. I have a couple more questions. And the first of my two is tell us about how your allocation to the consumer driven sector has changed in the NBS and ABS over the past month, six weeks, and what are you thinking about positioning for the future? So I'll take those in two parts, one on the agency, the GSE side, and then one on structured credit. So on the agency mortgage side, because of some of the location that happened in the agency mortgage market throughout March and then parts of April, specified pools, a specified pool has some type of a prepay story. So it should be more valuable than what TVA is. So there, it trades with a payup. Payups really collapsed during that time. And so it provided us, some, I thought, very good opportunities to buy some large blocks of agency mortgages that we felt actually had good call protection behind it. I think if you talk to a lot of the competitors, they've talked a lot in the past about you know, prepay protection stories can be something like a servicer that paid relatively slowly, or maybe there was a moderate loan balance pool, or maybe a high loan balance pool that has some call protection to it. I think all of that gets thrown out the window. I think all those bonds pay extremely fast. So the kind of collateral that you want is going to have some type of low loan balance or other about the state HFA story in the past, and we still really believe in that story. There's also reverse mortgages that are out there that really won't be affected by the prepaid wave either. So there are still things to do, and we were able to buy a lot of bonds a lot cheaper than where they would have traded in January and even parts of February. That's on the agency side. On the structured credit side, obviously, with the economy locked down and cash flows, 
you could say effectively stopping. I don't think that that's necessarily accurate, but slowing down that we've been concerned about how bonds are going to perform going forward. So the longer that a lockdown goes with the virus, obviously the more stress there's going to be on securitized credit. Now, we've done a lot of work across all of our bonds and coming up with a couple different scenarios. And we run all the bonds in core bond and the core bond strategy through what we call you know, a base case. So what would a recessionary environment based on virus, what would that look like? Then we take it to another level to what would a severe recession look like? And then an extended lockdown, which basically puts you in a depressionary environment. We're happy to say that our bonds performed extremely well through the first two scenarios. And even in the depressionary environment, they still perform pretty well. There could potentially be some principal loss, but if we got in that scenario, there would be a lot of other things to worry about. And the question is, you should be asking yourself, how could I sit here with a straight face and say that if the economy is locked down for six to nine months? And I will tell you, it's because of diversification of the portfolio and how we've always approached what we buy. So we're bottom up. We always looked at each one of these bonds and stressed them to very severe, very stressed scenarios, downturn scenarios, just so we had a good idea how they would perform if we ever got into these environments. The one thing about structured credit, too, is that it's a relatively short-duration asset and that the more seasoned a bond is, so something that was issued in 2016, 2017, 2018, through the deleveraging nature of the structures, have a lot of credit enhancement and can take a very, very serious downturn to the economy. When you start getting in 2019, it's not quite as good. In 2020, the newer bonds issued potentially could put under stress. Our strategy has been for as long as I've been doing this is that we've had a high allocation of structured credit. Some of you that have known me for a long time, I've talked a lot about that when you invest in AMS or structured credit, you have to keep the machine turning constantly to keep your allocation up because you have bonds that amortize all the time, all right? So they're constantly amortizing and you're getting your cash flow back. So when February happened, we made the conscious decision that we were just going to start to let our structured credit positions run down. As an example, just through the month of April, if you look at just our ABS allocation, it's down 40 basis points just on the paydowns. We expect that rate approximately to continue going forward. So if we don't buy anything, our allocation, and we'll say by September, is going to be relatively low. So as a portfolio manager, if we think things are getting a little bit better, we can crank up the machine and start buying structured credit on bonds that we think are very well protected and we like the stories. Or if things start to turn down again, we can pull back and let the portfolio, the ABS or the structured credit in the portfolio roll off. And my final question, which I think most people are interested in, is how should institutions think about the role of fixed income in their portfolios going forward? You know, I hear this talk about no value because of rates being so low. And, you know, then I go and I pull up my PA and I look at my PA and the only thing that's green is core bond. So my answer is core bond 
should always be that ballast in your portfolio. And I say always. Yes, yields are coming down. Risk premiums are going up. So you're always going to have some yield there, but it's going to be high-quality yield. But when I look at, so I'm looking at my world equity index screen right now, and the Dow Jones year-to-date is still down 16%. The S&P 500 is still down over 10%. The core bonds up a little less than 4%. That makes me pretty happy when I look at my PA. So from an institutional standpoint, to where you know you're really dealing with other people's money, I think core bond and fixed income is something that you are going to want to have in a very uncertain environment for an extended period of time to help you sleep a little bit better at night. Fantastic. Thank you for participating today. Please stay safe and healthy. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, 
by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.